All right, so there's some big questions out there uh, in the world, uh, and, and some, some questions that we ask uh, very well might be uh, questions that change everything about how we know uh, the world exists, or at least our world for that matter. Uh, at least the answer, some of the, some of the easiest questions would change everything about who we are, how we run our life, the relationships, the, the relationships that we have, all that thing. I, I'm beginning to just think through some of those very simple questions. One of those first questions for me, will you marry me? That question. Uh, the answer to that one changes your life just a wee bit, Right? Right? So I found that I've been a bachelor for about four days. My wife and kids went out to go see the snow, and now they're stuck there. I'm not really sure when they're coming back. Uh, so I, I figured out my life is not that great uh, without them. Uh, so, but there, there's other questions like, um, sweetie, is it time for us to have children? That changes your life, right? Uh, I, or uh, is it time for me to retire? Changes every day, right? I mean, that, that, that'll change your everyday relationships, everything. Um, you might look at a doctor and say, do I have terminal cancer? The answer to that question would change your life, everything about yourself, right? How you run everything. Now, I think that there's a million questions in the world, but there are very important ones. I, mean, I did a little research this week. So the average child uh, asks 144 questions every day. 144 questions. That's a question every five minutes. The average four-year-old girl, get this, which I'm about to have one next week. The average four-year-old girl, 390 questions a day. That's one every two minutes. So if you're a mom and possibly you have more than one child, you are getting asked 400 plus questions a day. We're going to go into a prayer time now for you (laughs) specifically. Um, But there is one specific question that would change everything. It's, I mean, for me, it would change everything. It would change my very livelihood. And that question is, does God exist? Does God exist? Yes or no? Big question. Now, let me be honest with you for just a moment. Now, you might think that pastor standing up here, of course, I'm going to say yes. My very livelihood depends on the answer to this question. And let me be honest with you. The answer to that question, sometimes I I ask that question sometimes in my brain. I've been a pastor for over a decade now. And the question, does God exist, still pops up every now and then. It's not something I dwell on on a regular basis. It's not a question I ask on a daily basis or anything. I don't lose any sleep over that question. But does God exist? I sometimes ask that question to myself and I ponder about it. And I, and I don't think I'm alone in this room and thinking through that question. Does God in fact exist? Because the ramifications of that would be incredibly intense. Now, we can look at that question and you can take two different paths of figuring out the answer to this question. You can look at that question, does God exist, objectively, or you can look at it subjectively objectively or subjectively. Here's what I mean by those two things. If you were to look at this objectively, does God exist? You are going to assume first that he does not exist, uh, and then you're going to look for some evidence, and you're going to ask thousands of questions regarding whether his existence is true or not. You're going to interview people who do believe in him. You're going to interview people that don't believe in him, and then you're probably going to come up with some kind of answer on your own. That's objectivity. Then there's the subjective way of looking at it. You're going to assume that he does exist. You're going to trust in your experience with him. You're going to walk in what you have been taught and what you possibly believe. 
Now, I don't believe that either of those are a bad option, okay? I don't believe that either of those are wrong or sinful or anything like that. I don't think it's wrong to objectively look for the existence of God, and I don't think it's wrong for you to subjectively look for the existence of God. I will say that I believe that one of those ways is better than the other. I believe that one way is pretty healthy for you, and one way is slightly dangerous. Um. Now imagine if we, if you will, for just a second, just kind of take your brain. If you want to close your eyes, you can, but you don't have to, right? I want, to, I want you to imagine a scene for me. Imagine yourself walking through, uh, you know, kind of, some kind of deep forest on a very hot, humid day. And you've been hiking for a long time, possibly by yourself, just you and nature. You want to get out for the day, go for a long hike. And it's hot, and you're hot, and it's just, you're getting tired, need some water, and you're like, oh, you know, hang on, I'm going to take a break. I need to take a break. And all of a sudden, in the quietness, you hear some rushing water. And you're like, okay, I'm going to go towards that. So you find your way, you man your, your way through the woods, and all of a sudden, you come upon this massive, beautiful waterfall. Now, you're looking at this waterfall, and it's a little bit too hard to believe. It's so wonderful. It's so pure. It's so fresh. It's almost surreal. Because you are alone and you're looking at this waterfall and it's the exact thing that you need. And then the thought comes into your brain, you know what? I was walking for a long time and I was really hot. And I don't know if my mind is playing a trick on me or not. And so I'm not really sure that what I'm seeing in front of me is real or not. It's a little bit too good to be true. Now, you can take two different ways of going about wondering, why, wondering if the waterfall is real. You can look at it very objectively. You can go and try to figure out its source. You can go and kind of try to hike around, try to figure out where is this thing coming from? Is the waterfall good or is it bad? What's the purpose of the waterfall? You can look at all those different questions. You might even like, you know, do some tests, like take a little bit of the water, do a pH test on it or something like that to figure out, is this thing real or am I just imagining this thing? That would be an objective way of looking at the waterfall. A subjective way would be to dive in. To dive into the water. To allow, the, to, to allow the freshness of the water to hit your face. To stand underneath the power of the rushing water. Feel the power of that water hits your head and hits your shoulders. And just and allow yourself to be consumed by it. That's a subjective way. Now I know which way I would go. I'm pretty sure that I would go with the subjective experiential way of finding out whether the waterfall was real. I think that that is an incredibly healthy way of looking at whether God exists or not. See, here's the deal. The Bible, when we begin our process of looking at the entire story of the Bible, the Bible doesn't start with, here are ten things that tell you that God exists. The Bible doesn't start like that. It doesn't, doesn't start with philosophical meanderings about the existence of God. The Bible just jumps in subjectively into the waterfall of God and just says, he is. And then through time and through scripture, it begins to prove who exactly he is. And so I want to I believe in God the way that the Bible believes in God and jump in subjectively to my experience with God, just like the Bible jumps in subjectively to my experience with God. And it starts with the power of God. It 
It's not metaphysical philosophy or evidence. It's not philosophical prose. It's just simply, I'm going to jump right in. So, but there is, uh, so before we jump in, I, I really want to kind of today walk through some kind of preliminary facts. And here's the reason why. Because I, I don't know where in this series we're going to get back to some of the things that I'm going to talk about today. Because they're kind of highly intelligible, like they're, they're kind of very uh, philosophical in nature. It's very systematic. Most of what we're going to do this year is walking through the story of Scripture. What I'm going to do today is kind of systematic. We're going to be pulling from different parts of the Bible to kind of see who God uh, really is. And so there's some preliminary work that we're going to do today. Um, now, but what I'm, what I'm feeling, though, is that's a little bit dangerous. It's a little bit dangerous for me to do that because you are either going to take the information that I'm going to give today, and there's going to be seven points, okay? Um, you're going to take the information today, and you're either going to digest it in a very healthy way, or you're going to digest it in a very unhealthy way. So I'm a little bit scared for those of you who are going to do that or think through this in a very unhealthy way. Now, I'm, I'm not going to explain that until the very end. So for right now, I want you to look at these scriptures. I want, to di- I want you to just take it all in. I want you to listen. I want you to engage. And I want you to work through these seven points uh, with me. Okay, so we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible, uh, jump to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 1. Um, and, uh, and so you can, always, you can also look on your phone. The, the Bible app, the YouVersion app is available for you. Uh, there should be notes on there for you. Uh, of course, uh, some of my notes will be up on the screen for you. And this might be a great opportunity. We've given you pens and uh, a bulletin so that you can write down some notes. This is a fantastic day uh, to take some notes because I believe that some of the notes you might take today uh, might be helpful for you. Now, before I read this verse and before we get into this series, let me do a little bit of just basic teaching Bible 101 with you so we're all on the same page, okay? The Bible is 66 books. How many books is it? 66 books. Okay. They vary in length, all right? They vary in length. Some of them are one page and some of them are small books. I mean, many pages, many chapters, okay? It's broken up into two different sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's uh, done in three different languages, mostly in Hebrew, a little tiny bit in Aramaic, and also most of the New Testament is written uh, in Greek. All of your Bibles uh, that you hold in your hands that you're reading in English or Spanish or whatever you want to read it in, okay, those are translations of the original text. Unless you are reading the Greek or the Hebrew right now, you are reading a translation of the original uh, text, okay? The Bible is written in uh, lots of diverse writings as well. There's letters, there's oracles of God, there's poetry, there's laments, there's historical narrative, uh, there's apocalyptic literature. This is something that we don't uh, really use anymore, but it's highly symbolic. Um, now, it's, it's funny that the Bible has, when you say, I'm going to turn to the book of Genesis or the book of Deuteronomy, what's funny about that is the Bible is actually made up of books, and it itself, the word Bible means book. So for those of you who really think the Bible means something high and falutin, that's not true. It just means book. And so when you say holy Bible, you are saying holy book, okay? And so it, pretty, pretty good stuff. Now, the Bible also, as you hold it in your hands, is not written or is, is not put together chronologically. And so if you pick up page one and you do want to read all the way through, you're, not going to, you're going to get a lot of it chronologically, but not completely. The Bible is actually broken up into um, two sections of writing. So you have the law, then you have history, then you have poetry, then you have 
prophets and then the story of Jesus and you have letters and then followed by apocalyptic literature. And so it's not put together chronologically. So if you're looking at our plan for the whole story and you're looking at that and you're saying, well, wait a minute, it's not, it's not going exactly in the order of the Bible. They're kind of skipping around a little bit. And that's the, the reason why we did that is because we are going to try to read it like you would normally read a normal story. And so we're going to try to work through it chronologically the best way that we know how, okay? Uh, so that's, that's the Bible in a nutshell. We want to make sure that we're reading it as best we can to get as much information about the redemptive story as possible, okay? Now that I got all that done. Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Are you guys ready? Say, I'm ready if you're ready. Sweet. Okay, here we go. Start to the series. In the beginning, God. Stop. Okay. That's all we're going to do today. Uh, so we're going to go four words. This series is going to take 3,800 years. Um, so, uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but that's where we're going to be today. In the beginning, God. Genesis 1.1. The Bible, from its very start, assumes God's existence. God's existence. And for our purposes today, so will we. We will assume that he exists, and we're going to jump into the waterfall of who God is. Okay? And now we're going to systematically look at it. Seven things about God that we know from the Bible. Be ready. Have your hand ready. Let's write some notes down. Number one, God simply is. Number one, God simply is. Is. Now, that's a paradoxical statement all in itself. And what I mean by that is because that little tiny phrase is nothing but simple. When I say that God simply is, there's nothing simple about that statement at all. God doesn't have a beginning. He is not a created thing like we are. Uh, he has always been and exists outside of time because time is a created thing that he created. Um, Now, this is difficult for us to really gather our mind around for two reasons. God simply is, doesn't fit, number one, in our logic. We cannot logically grasp that there is a being outside of space and time that exists for all of eternity past and will exist for all of eternity future. And that is, for, for our finite mind that is bound by space and time, very difficult for us to comprehend. So our logic or human logic does not completely get that statement. The second reason why we have a problem with God simply is, is because we have been been conditioned for now several hundred years to start with I. And that comes from a guy named Rene Descartes. Now, if you studied philosophy at all in high school or college, you might know this guy, Rene Descartes. He was a Christian philosopher hoping to, prove, uh, the, hoping to prove the existence of God. But first he decided that he was going to prove the existence of man. And so he came up with this phrase and he says, I think, therefore I am. Okay, there's some of you that took the class. Very good. And pay attention. All right. So I think, therefore I am. And what he wanted to do there was, a, was prove that we are not some existential mystic non-reality. He wanted to prove that human beings do actually exist. And so what he said was, if you are a thinking being, then therefore you really do exist in a real world. The problem with that is that shifted all of our thinking and reality to not start and assume with God that God is the first mover, but it, it, it told us that we should start with I. That reality as it is starts with me. 
And that all of my thinking always starts with, do I believe this? Not rather than there is a superior sovereign being who is larger, bigger, and more grander than me that understands things at a much grander level than I do, understands reality better than I do, I should probably start with him rather than me. But we have all been conditioned to start with I, with me. And so we have a big problem sometimes really logically coming to grips with God simply is. Number two, God has made everything that is not God. God has made everything that is not God. All that you see uh, and know is made from our creator. Every molecule, every atom, from the air that you breathe to the concept of thought, from the farthest reaches of the universe to the smallest molecule that the strongest microscope could find. God has created all of those things. There's nothing outside of that. And therefore, because he has created everything that is not God, it is therefore consistent that we are not God. Because we are, in fact, a created one. Now, someone might say, I mean, you might look at it and say, well, who made God? And the reason why we think, we always think that question, well, who made God? Because we believe we live, in, we live in a world that has cause and effect. Everything we do has cause and effect. There has to be a first mover. There has to be a cause to make sure that something happens. And so something that does not have a cause is hard for us to completely grasp. And here's the deal. And the reason why God is outside of all of those things is because God is not dependent on anything. We are dependent. He is independent. He does not need anything for a cause. Now, I wanna, at this moment, I want to stop and pause for a second because this is, I've already integrated you with, with some like deep philosophical stuff. Okay, so, so I want to stop for a second and apply this real quick. If God is completely independent and we are dependent, that God has created everything that is not God and that everything that we see, we feel, we think, every, all of those things were created by God, then why do we worry? Why do we get anxious? If we have a creator that controls all things, makes all things, knows all things, why do we struggle with control. We think that we can control things. But if we understand the depth of God's cause, I mean, the depth of, of God's independency, then we would not struggle with this because we would know that he is completely in control and that we can begin to act like it. Now, there was this guy, his name was Job in the Bible, and we're going to get to him in a few weeks in the book of Job. And, uh, and Job was struggling through some really bad stuff. And we'll, we'll walk through that. I mean, it was, he lost his kids. He lost everything he had. He was sick. It was really terrible. And he began to really question God. And he really didn't understand what was happening to him. So he was really struggling through some, uh, through some things. Uh, and so he begins to say, God, why have you done all these things? I'm struggling through even your existence. And so God actually answers back to him in Job 38. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up on the screen, okay? Job 38 verse 4 says this. This is God speaking to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? 
On what were uh, its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. God is being a little bit sarcastic here with Job, and, uh, and basically saying, where were you? Hey, when I formed the universe, when I formed the atoms that make up your body, where were you? So you're going to question what I do, being the only independent being in the universe. I made everything that you are. And I have all things under my control. And so therefore, you can trust me. Number three. Number three. There is only one of him. There is only one of him. The Bible is very specific about this. Uh, it, it says it over and over again. In fact, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, also says this, one of the, um, uh, probably the most memorable parts of the scripture in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you, Today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall, shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So that commandment, with, and they, here's what the Israelites would do. They would memorize that passage and they would say it on a regular basis as a prayer. And they would say, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. There is only one that is like him. There is no other being on the face of the planet. There's, no, there's nothing else that is like him. He is the only one. And so this idea that there might be other gods out there, so to speak, other supreme beings is completely false. Anything that claims to be God, the very molecules that, they, that make them up were created by God alone. He is the only one. Number four. This one's fun. God is a talking God. God is a talking God. They might look at that and say, is that the same? Like, what do you mean? Like, like a talking horse? What does that mean? Number four, God is a talking. He speaks. God speaks. Many of us think that God is this kind of quiet force, kind of like Star Wars, that God just kind of makes things move and never has any type of relationship. That's not true at all. We see that at the first part of the Bible in Genesis 1, we're going to, okay, go down uh, chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. You can read it right here. Number th- uh, verse 3, and God said, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light in, in, uh, from the darkness. And verse 5, God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So God speaks. We don't have a silent force making decisions in the universe. He speaks things into existence. And you might, and you might say that this, this stuff in Genesis 1 is just kind of metaphorical. It's symbolic. He's not actually using real words. But we get just another chapter or so down the road and cre- God creates by his word human beings. And then what is the first thing he, do, he does to them? He speaks to them. We have a speaking God. He is not an impersonal force. He is not some unmoved mover. He's not a mystical experience. He is a relational God who speaks like a friend speaks to a friend. Number five, everything God made is good. Number five, everything God made is good. 
After God creates everything, he reiterates over and over again some, some form of approval in saying that it is good. And the Bible is littered with a reoccurring theme of God's goodness. I mean, it's a regular thing through the book of Psalms. It talks about how, how good God is and the goodness of everything that he has created. Uh, and, and this is hard for us to gather sometimes because we live in this world that is now broken from sin and we don't see it as God originally created it. We see it with this dark form of of sin, malice, evil, wrong, ugliness, brokenness. That's how we see the world. But God originally created everything as good because he is good. And God's ultimate purpose is to bring back the creation, back to where, where it was in the fullness and goodness of who God was. God doesn't make sin. He doesn't make anything that is broken or evil or wrong. God makes all things that are good because he is good. Number six. The creation proclaims the greatness and the goodness and the glory of God. Now, let me say it again. The creation proclaims what you see outside. The creation proclaims the greatness and glory of God. Now, the whole idea of glory escapes us because we only use that word usually uh, in military terms and then in church. I mean, that's pretty much it. We don't, we don't talk about the glory of something. You don't get an email and say, oh, that's glorious. Like, that never happens. Um, we only use that term in church. So it's, but the Bible talks about it all the time, that we should behold the glory of God. Now, <clears throat> I live in a broken world. I'm a sinful man, just like you, would, just like you are. And so, uh, and so I struggle sometimes to really see what things, how things are glorious and all that God, is, God makes as glorious. There were four specific times in my life where I was in a euphoric state of seeing something was, that was, in fact, glorious. And I beheld its glory. I've had the privilege of, of having four children and being in the room when they were born each time. And so when the, when the doctor or the nurse hands me the child... And I'm looking at my sons and my daughters and looking at them and all I'm doing is beholding their glory, beholding how they are made, the beauty of their makeup. It, and it's, it, and if, you're, if you're a parent, you understand this because it's, it's like I, I, I have no words to describe how grand and how great and the emotional just wellness of my heart right now it's so difficult to explain because I'm beholding the glory of you. Now, skip into Psalm chapter 19. If you're in missional community, you guys read this this week. In Psalm 19, 1 through 4, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all of the earth, and their words to the end of the world. The heavens, when you go outside and you look at the stars and the clouds and the sun and the moon, you look at it all and you say, the heavens declare the glory of God, just like this child was declaring glory when I, stand, when I stand outside and see God's creation and see everything that God has made, they are declaring God's glory on a regular basis. It's, just, it's speaking, it's pouring forth all the time. We need not doubt his existence. Now, the problem with all that is that we struggle to see it sometimes. And, um, and the reason why we struggle to see it is because of sin. Because our world is broken. And... 
there's dark shadows and clouds over most things that we we are limited because of our because of our sin and it's very difficult to see. Now number 7 last one. God became like us with his goodness without our sin. Let me say it again. God became like us with his goodness without our sin. You see God God's glory is pouring forth from the universe, but it's difficult for us to see because of sin. That has to be remedied. That has to be fixed. And so God becomes becomes a man. His name is Jesus. He's the son of God. He is God in the flesh himself. And he comes to take away sin and redeem and restore humanity back to the goodness of how God created in the first place. Our world is sinful and destructive and chaotic. God is good and, and, and is structured and is loving, right? God reveals himself through the person of Jesus and he volunteers to stand in our place to take our penalty, to take away sin. Philippians says it like this. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. God simply is. God has made everything that is not God. God is a speaking God. God is good all the time. His glory pours forth from his creation, but our, but, our, but our world is completely broken. And so God decided to fix it by sending his son Jesus to die for sin on a cross so that we might have relationship back to the goodness of God. That's what Christianity is. Now here's the deal, spoiler alert, okay? For the whole story. We are always, in every single sermon, no matter where we are in this Bible, we are always going to point to Jesus. He is the climactic point and focus of all of the scripture. You will not come in here on Sunday morning and walk through an Old Testament story that might not speak the name of Jesus, but you will, you will hear about Jesus because all of the Old Testament, all of the story of scripture is pointing to Christ. And we will always make those connections. But here's the deal. The, the Old Testament looks forward to Christ. The New Testament tells his story, looks back upon what he did, and looks forward to his return. All of Scripture is about Jesus. So no matter where we are in this whole story, we are going to point to the person of Christ. And here's the reason why. It's because we want you to fall in love desperately, vulnerably, and just completely abandon yourself to the person of Jesus. We, I so desire that for you. And I want you to get to a place that I'm going to call this. I want you to get to a place this year, sometime soon, of what I'm going to call vulnerable abandonment faith. This is when you dive into the waterfall. Vulnerable abandonment faith. I told you there was two ways to take this information. One of them is healthy and one of them is unhealthy. Here's the the healthy way is what I'm talking about. You jump into the waterfall of God. You bask in his glory. You take all of what has been said this morning as truth from the scripture. And there's a moment where we're just completely vulnerable and trust what has been said. To trust him completely and put off all skepticism. To grow, as we say at the church at Cane Bay, to give and to go as a disciple of Christ. 
We desire that kind of vulnerability and abandonment to live joyfully in the power of the waterfall of grace. That's what we want. We desire. That's a healthy way to look at God. Now, an unhealthy way to take this information. I'm not saying it's sinful or wrong. That's not what I'm saying. Don't hear me wrong, okay? An unhealthy and possibly dangerous way of looking at this information is what I'm going to call factual approval. Factual approval. This is the person that has researched God. And then when he does enough research and she does enough research and finds that God is in fact real, does in fact exist, and has done what he says that he is, has done, right? That doesn't make any sense. Okay. That has done what he said he will do. There it is. And that you just say, okay, I'm going to intellectually assent to the approval of this and I'm going to put my stamp of approval and say, yes, God exists, good for him. And we factually affirm or factually approve what God is. That you've seen the intelligence and you just simply intellectually agree that you dutifully submit to who God is. It's like, okay, well, I guess you do exist. You're right. Okay, I'm yours. Here's where that leads. That leads to a very self-centered religion where you are more focused on the rules of God because you do believe that he exists and you believe in what he has said, but your heart isn't there. And so you believe in the rules and the commandments that he gives, but you fail to accept the grace that he gives. That you, you go to church because you have to, not because you get to. You find no joy. There's no experiential joy Because what you've done your whole entire life is just kind of intellectually agree with who God is. And here's the worst part, is that you constantly seek God's approval, and you just want his rubber stamp, because that's what you've done to him, is you've just approved him. So I want you to be careful. For those of you in this room who, you're here because you have to be. Because you agree that God exists. And you out of duty are here and you serve sometimes because you have to. But God's graciousness has not left here to here. And that you just intellectually agree. I want to see a church that is moving forward with folks who have become so vulnerable and so abandoned and so faithful to who Jesus is, that they have fallen in love with him. I, uh, the other day, so I'd, um, uh, my daughter, she's seven now. Her name is Reagan. And she, uh, we, uh, she has this little hideout in her room. It's a little, like it's supposed to be a storage area that we would just given to her as a little tiny hideout. It doesn't have any windows. And she likes to, she has a little light in there. And she's got a little mat. And, and she's got all her books in there and toys and stuff. And it's her spot. It's her place to just be. And she's an introvert, and she likes to go in there and be in there for hours reading books. And, and so the other day, I, I crawled in. It's a little tiny door. It's about that high. And I crawled in to her little hideout. And she thought it was the greatest thing in the world that her, her 6'4 dad would crawl into her little hideout. And, and I just sat there with her, and she sat in my lap. And we were talking. I was asking her about her day and asking her what she learned in school and what she was reading. And we just kind of bantered back and forth for a little while. Uh, and uh, and I, at some point, I made a joke, and she laughed, which is good for a daughter, right? Um, <clears throat> And she laughed, and she just looked at me, and she said, I love you, Daddy, and she gave me a hug. Great moment for us, right? 
And so me, just kind of being a little bit needy, um, I said, Reagan, why do you love me? And she said, she said, oh, I love you so much. And I, and she, uh, and I, said, I said, how do you know that I love you? And she goes, Daddy. And I said, no, really, how do you know? I don't know. And, she, and I said, well, it's because I give you things, I give you food, and I give you a house, and I give you clothes, and I give you books. And she's like, no. It's because, you know, because I cook, and I made some jokes with her, and she just says, no, 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 over and again. And then, and then I, I said, well, how do you know that I love you? And then she just goes, Daddy, I just know. That is what I want from my relationship with God. I, I, I do want the reason and the science, and I want all the facts, and all those things are good. But first, I want to just know. Subjectively, experientially, I just want to know God and place vulnerable abandonment faith in him. And my hope is, is that you would as well. And all the science and all the reason and all the philosophy is going to come after that as we read through the scripture and we find out who God is. But for right now, I just want you to believe in God and assume that he is. And then walk in him. So, only step today. If that's you, if that's where you're living right now, just keep going. Keep going in that. Dive deeper into the waterfall, okay? If you find yourself in this room today and you're like, you know what, I'm that person that's just kind of intellectually just approving God, then it's time for you to spend some time in prayer and repent of that. And say, God, I want to know you in a deep, desiring way. I want to be vulnerable with you. Take some time to repent and pray through that. If you want someone to talk to you about that, I would love to do that with you. Okay? So let's pray. Father God, we love you uh, very much, and we're, we're just so thankful for you. And, uh, and, and God, you're, you've been altogether good for us, with us, and you've displayed all things for your glory. Um, so thank you for a good time in your scripture today. I look forward to reading through uh, the whole story. Um, Father, take our church and move us away from intellectual approval, from, from just factual approval of who you are, to a vulnerable abandonment faith where we fall in love with your son Jesus and know that he is the center of our faith. We desire folks and families that do that. God, I love you. Uh, In these next few moments, I pray that you continue to be here within this place with our church. Amen. Amen. We're going to do something together as a family, as a church, uh, called uh, called the, the Lord's Supper or Communion. Uh, and this is, this is a chance for, just a, it's, it's an act of worship that we, uh, that we like to do on a regular basis. And, um, and I, I don't want to freak you out or anything if this isn't you, if you're not really a churchy person, if that's not who you are. And this, you might look at this and think, man, that's, that's very interesting. Um, here's, here's what it is. There's bread up here and there's juice up here that symbolizes wine. And what this is, is it's, a, uh, it's called the Lord's Supper The day before Jesus was to be crucified, he gathered his disciples in a small room and they were to celebrate the Passover together. Passover was a very symbolic meal of how God brought uh, the Israelites out of captivity. And during this meal that had huge symbolism, Jesus adds two more significant symbols to which we celebrate today. That is, the first is a bread. The bread, he said, symbolizes his body that would be broken for us on the cross. 
The juice, or what we what symbolizes the wine, is, is, symbolizes his blood that was poured out for us. And so he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, as, a, uh, as this is going to be part, I'm going to be part of who you are now. That we are going to be one as a church. That we are one in Christ. And then when we, when we celebrate the bread and the wine and we celebrate that together, it helps us to remember what Jesus did for us. That as we crunch the bread in our teeth, we remember that Jesus' body was broken for us. As we drink the juice, we remember that Jesus' blood was spilled for us and covers over us. It's a very symbolic thing. Now, here's the deal. If you are a believer in Jesus this morning, I would invite you to come and take one of the cups and take a piece of bread and bring it back to your seat and have a moment of prayer. The Bible says that we should consecrate ourselves or, or ask for forgiveness before we, walk into, before we walk in these symbols. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, then I would ask that you would just simply stay in your seat and kind of watch and observe what's happening. And maybe you just have some questions that you would like to ask uh, a little bit later after today's service, and I'd be happy to walk with you in that, okay? Uh, so I'm going to read this scripture, which is what Jesus uh, did, uh, what, how Jesus would have said it in the book of Matthew. It says this in Matthew 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it, uh, when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. So this is symbolism of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And then as you heard it in that last verse, he says, I will not do this again until, you, until we eat together in heaven, in the kingdom of God. So this also symbolizes our, the grand banquet table when we all sit around with Jesus in heaven for all of eternity that we celebrate together. So my hope is that you would take it, take it um, come just, uh, we'll, we'll come down this aisle and come down this aisle and then use the center and the sides as a place for people to disperse, okay? So just take a piece of bread, take a cup, take it back to your seat, have a prayer time with, with just you and God and then take it and then we're gonna sing a little bit, okay? Would you stand up with me? Father, um, thank you for giving, <clears throat> thank you for giving Jesus who gave us these signs and gave us these symbols so that we might, that we might, we might remember him and his crucifixion and death for us. Father, I pray that we would consecrate ourselves because you give us grace. You allow us to be pure in front of you through our relationship with Jesus. Father, hear us as a church as we submit, as we repent, as we walk in your way. Amen. Mm-hmm.